and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So if you happen to hear any sort of improvement in the quality of my audio, that's because I actually bought a standalone microphone. So I hope that my podcast, moving forward, will actually sound a lot better, which is nice. But anyway, today what I'm going to talk about is I'm going to talk about an absolute classic of a movie. Is it a Halloween movie? Is it a Christmas movie? Who cares? It could be both. That's right, we're going to be talking about 1993's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Or I guess you could also say Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, but we'll get into it. Now, my history with this movie is, I don't think I saw it when I was a kid, necessarily. Like, I didn't grow up on it being a a wee child, but I definitely probably watched it when I was at least a teenager. I was in high school in the mid-2000s, so of course that was when Hot Topic was at its most, you know, banging time, and of course The Nightmare Before Christmas and its licensing was all over that place. So, of course, I I enjoyed the aesthetic that they had on that. Yeah, I, I probably watched it for the first time then, and then as time has gone on, I have just grown to really enjoy this movie for the most part, and I'm very happy to report that when I went to Florida a couple years ago, myself and my sister went to Walt Disney World, and we did the very not-so-scary Halloween party there, which was fun. And I got to meet Jack and Sally, and it was so wonderful and nice. I have the photos still, and I'm, I'm still just so happy that I did that. But anyway, uh, regardless of that, uh, we're just going to move into this movie. Uh, so I'm going to go over some figures of the movie, give you some little background information about this film as a whole, and then we'll move into a bit of a plot summary as well, and then we'll wrap up. Let's move into our figures. So The Nightmare Before Christmas was released October 29th, 1993, and the screenplay was written by Caroline Thompson, with a story by Tim Burton, so it was his story idea. There was also a gentleman by the name of Michael McDowell, who is a part of this process as well, but we'll get to that story in just a little bit. This was directed by Henry Selick, and produced by Tim Burton and Denise DeNovi, and music by Danny Elfman. The budget for this movie was $18 million, and in terms of box office, we're looking at a gross U.S. and Canada of $77.3 million, and a gross worldwide of $91.2 million. We're looking at a Rotten Tomatoes score of 95% on the tomato meter, and a 91% audience score. We're looking at a 7.9 out of 10 on IMDb, and a Letterboxd score of 4.0 out of 5. For our cast of characters, we have Chris Sarandon as the speaking voice of Jack Skellington, and we have Danny Elfman as the singing voice of Jack Skellington. Danny Elfman also voices Beryl, who's one of the trick-or-treaters working for Oogie Boogie, and the clown with the tearaway face, a self-described clown who rides a unicycle. We have Catherine O'Hara as Sally, and Catherine O'Hara also voices Shock, one of the trick-or-treaters that's working for Oogie Boogie. We have William Hickey as Dr. Finkelstein. We have Glenn Shattuck as the mayor of Halloween Town. We have Ken Page as Oogie Boogie. We have Ed Ivory as Santa Claus, and Ed Ivory also provides a brief narration at the start of the film. We also have Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman, as Locke, one of the trick-or-treaters working for Oogie Boogie. And we have Frank Welker, voiceover extraordinaire, as Zero, Jack's pet ghost dog. So I've pulled some critical response quotes for this movie from people who have talked about it on Rotten Tomatoes. So we have... Robert Roten from Laramie Movie Scope, who says, In many ways, it is a very clever film, but it never lives up to the promise of its visual brilliance. 
We also have Ralph Novak from People Magazine, who states, Adults, despite being wowed by the dazzling, gee, how they do that animation, will find their attention wandering to Christmas's past. And then we have David Starrett from the Christian Science Monitor, who states, Animation is a wonderful medium, but it's almost too compatible with Burton's uninhibited approach. When literally anything goes, even the most original idea can get lost in the creative shuffle. So in regards to any production history that I can share, um, I'm going to be pulling this information from the Wikipedia article of uh, The Night Before Christmas, but also there's a fun little 45-minute documentary show called The Movies That Made Us on Netflix, if you haven't already heard of it, and that is uh, where I'm getting some of the information as well, because they provide a little bit of the background story of what actually happened with this production. Let's move into this a little bit of development and filming. Tim Burton was brought up in Burbank, California. Um, this was associated with the feeling of solitude. Tim Burton was largely fascinated by holidays during his childhood. So he said, quote, anytime that there was Christmas or Halloween, it was great. It gave you some sort of texture all of a sudden that wasn't there before. And he actually completed a short film called Vincent in 1982, which if you have the DVD or Blu-ray, I think I have the Blu-ray of this, you uh, can actually watch that. It's literally, it has Vincent Price being a voiceover in it. And it's like really morbid, but it's totally in line with Tim Burton as a person. At that time, Burton, who was employed at Walt Disney Feature Animation, he wrote a three-page poem titled The Nightmare Before Christmas. Drawing inspirations from television specials of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas. So Burton intended to adapt the poem into a TV special with the narration spoken with his favorite actor, Vincent Price, who I just said that little short that he did Vincent, he actually has him in there doing the voiceover, which is kind of fun. But he also considered other options, such as like a children's book or something like that. He created concept art and storyboards for the project in collaboration with a gentleman by the name of Rick Heinrichs, who also sculpted character models and would end up pretty much being uh, the main guy who was doing a lot of these sculptures for Nightmare for Christmas. Burton later showed his and Heinrich's works in progress to Henry Selick, who was also a Disney animator at the time. They all were working at Disney around the same time, who would end up then being the director of this movie. After the success of Vincent in 1982, Disney started to consider developing The Night Before Christmas as either a short film or a 30-minute holiday television special. However, the project developmentally eventually was stalled as the tone seemed too weird, quote unquote, for the company. And as Disney was unable to, quote, offer his nocturnal loners enough scope, Burton was fired from the studio in 1984, but then went on to direct the commercially successful films Beetlejuice and Batman for Warner Brother Pictures. So over the years, Burton regularly thought about the project, and in 1990, Tim Burton found out that Disney still owned the film rights because he did pitch it to them, but pretty much, you know, after he got fired, you know, they weren't really going to do much with it. Then when he actually got successful with doing Beetlejuice, Batman, I throw Pee-wee's Big Adventure in there too, because that was his first film he directed. Then he was able to kind of write his own ticket in a way. So he and Selleck committed to producing a full-length film with Selleck as director. And Burton's own success with live-action films piqued the interest of a Walt Disney Studio chairman, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who saw this film as an opportunity to continue the studio's streak of recent successes in feature animation. So you got to remember, this is during the beginning of, I think, what would be considered the Disney Renaissance. So you have movies 
who's like the Little Mermaid coming out. This was also right around that time where you were going to have like Aladdin coming out. You were having all these like big movies from Disney come in, so they wanted to kind of keep that going. Disney was looking forward to Nightmare uh, to, quote, show capabilities of technical and storytelling achievements that were present in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I do believe they were a part of actually doing. Walt Disney Pictures president David Hoberman believed that the film would prove to be a creative achievement for Disney's image, elaborating, quote, we can think outside the envelope, we can do different and unusual things. But then it's kind of funny because this movie uh, didn't actually get directly released by Walt Disney Pictures. It was actually released under their sister company of Touchstone Pictures, the same people who released Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion and other kind of adult affair um, for the Walt Disney Company. Nightmare Before Christmas marked uh, Burton's third consecutive film with a Christmas setting. So, you know, you have like Edward Scissorhands, you have this. I don't remember what his other one was. It might have been Batman or something. I'm sure there was something in there. But Burton could not direct this because he was already doing Batman Returns and he didn't want to be involved with the painstakingly slow process of stop motion, which is what he's quoted as saying. And so to adapt his poem into a screenplay, Tim Burton approached Michael McDowell, who he collaborated with on Beetlejuice. And McDowell and Burton experienced creative differences, um, which then convinced Burton to make the film as a musical with lyrics and compositions by frequent collaborator Danny Elfman, also known as the lead singer of Oingo Boingo from back in the 80s. So Danny Elfman and Tim Burton, they created a rough storyline and two-thirds of the songs. Elfman found writing Nightmare's 11 songs is one of the easiest jobs he's ever had. He had a lot in common with Jack Skellington and actually cared Caroline Thompson, who ended up writing the screenplay of this movie, had yet to be hired to write the screenplay. But then, funny enough, Caroline Thompson and Danny Elfman were in a relationship together and living with one another. So, you know, you have Danny Elfman writing songs in one room. Caroline Thompson is hearing all of these because she's dating the guy and, you know, in a relationship with him. It was pretty much that he was she was able to get this job and, and be able to write it. Uh, which was good. You know, I think it definitely helped with her her career. With Thompson's screenplay, uh, Henry Selleck stated there are very few lines of dialogue that are Caroline's. She became busy on other films, and we were constantly rewriting, reconfiguring, and developing the film visually. So that was kind of a big thing of this movie, is that I think even the movies that made us, it was kind of this constant thing of like, who really wrote this? Was it Caroline Thompson, or was it uh, Henry Selleck? Like, who was it? But it really comes down to, especially this kind of movie, like, it's really a collaboration of the two. Uh, but I definitely consider... Caroline Thompson to be the writer of the screenplay, obviously, because it is what she did. But it is kind of crazy that they literally wrote a lot of those songs before they even had a a script, really. But it really worked out. I will also say in the movies that made us, uh, they do talk a little bit about Michael McDowell and uh, their creative differences that they had. Pretty much, I think, from what it seemed, at least. Michael McDowell took the money that he, you know, um, he had earned from being a scriptwriter and all this stuff and put it right up his nose uh, from what they said. So I think those are kind of the creative differences as well. Yeah, I think that's what happened. And he just wasn't 
holding up his end of the bargain it seemed like honestly he is now since passed away unfortunately he uh yeah great thing for beetlejuice you know he helped he wrote that thing he wrote that movie uh yeah nightmare for christmas just wasn't working uh for him and so that's why i ended up going to caroline thompson so then in the terms of the filming of this movie so henry Selick and his team of animators began production in 1991 uh in july of 1991 in san francisco with a crew of over 120 workers they utilized 20 sound stages for filming and they had a gentleman by the name of joe ramped was hired from disney as a storyboard supervisor while eric lighton was hired to supervise animation so at the peak of production 20 individual stages were simultaneously being used for filming and in total there are there were 109,440 frames taken for the film and so the work of a couple different artists like Ray Harryhausen, Ladisla Sterovich, excuse my pronunciation of some of these words, Edward Gorey, I'm aware of him, Tien Delessert, Gahan Wilson, Charles Adams, who I believe did The Adams Family, if I'm not mistaken, Jan Lanisha, Francis Bacon and Wassily Kandinsky influenced the filmmakers. And so Henry Selick described the production design as akin to a pop up book. And in addition, Henry Selig stated that when we reach Halloween Town, it's entirely German expressionism. When Jack enters Christmas Town, it's an outrageous Dr. Seuss esque set piece, which, if you do look at this, you do very much get that kind of aesthetic. Finally, when Jack is delivering presents in the quote real world, everything is plain, simple, and perfectly aligned. So, Vincent Price, Don Amici, and James Earl Jones were considered to provide the narration for the film's prologue. However, all of them proved difficult to cast and the producers instead hired a local voice artist Ed Ivory who then ended up becoming the voice of Santa Claus and Patrick Stewart actually provided the prologue narration for the film soundtrack so he's also on there too which is kind of cool Professor X. On the direction of the film, Henry Selig reflected that he, quote, it's as if he thought Burton laid the egg and that I sat on it and hatched it. He wasn't involved in a hands-on way, but his hand was in it. It was my job to make it look like a, quote, Tim Burton film, which is not so different from my own films, because I think he then went on to do, like, James and the Giant Peach and other type similar movies like that. So when asked about Burton's involvement, Selleck claims, I don't want to take away from Tim, but he was not in San Francisco when we made it. He came up five times over two years and spent no more than eight or ten days in total. And so Walt Disney Feature Animation contributed with some second layer traditional animation and Burton found production somewhat difficult because he was simultaneously filming Batman Returns and he was doing pre-production for Ed Wood, which is another movie he did. And the filmmakers constructed 227 puppets to represent the characters in the movie, with Jack Skellington having around 400 heads, allowing the expression of every possible emotion. Sally's mouth movements were animated through the replacement method during the animation process, only Sally's face mask was removed in order to preserve the order of her long red hair. So Sally had like 10 different types of faces, each made with a series of 11 expressions. So like her eyes open and close and various facial poses and synchronized mouth movements. And the stop motion figurine of Jack is actually uh, reused in James and the Giant Peach, which is also directed by Henry Selick um, as Captain Jack. So it's kind of funny that he was able to use that as well. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely a thing of like this movie 
feels like a Tim Burton movie uh, when you have that kind of like aesthetic and just that kind of, uh, if you will, auteur type of director, if you will, because you can definitely tell when Tim Burton makes a movie or when he's involved in it. But I definitely think that this is Henry Selleck's movie. Again, has that Tim Burton feel, but it's definitely Henry Selleck's movie. And uh, it's it's just a beautiful stop motion you know, masterpiece that you know, I believe in at least. So yeah, I think that's pretty much everything I can think of in terms of production history. Uh, again, I say maybe watch the movies that made us about this because you'll find out a little bit more in depth. It was really cool that, you know, Danny Elfman was able to really make his music from this and really he never, he never did a, uh, a film score like this and so now he does a ton of them and he that's part of what his career is um and this is kind of a a cool start to that and then also you know other folks who were involved in this you know it was very much this kind of like camp of misfits if you will um who were making this happen and making this production come to life And so I really enjoy that. So in regards to this movie being a cult classic film, I absolutely believe that it is, even though it did do well financially, and it is obviously owned by the giant corporation that is the Walt Disney Company. Um, I will still say that it's, it's a cult classic because it is a movie that when it came out, it did not blow people away necessarily it wasn't it was something where it came out and yeah i think it was then after repeated viewings of it i think that's where it really stuck for people because yeah when it first came out i don't think it did what it thought it was going to do or or at least by disney standards it seems like and so being able to then have it go on to tv home video releases, things of that nature, was then able to help bring it back into something that people really enjoyed. I think also young kids or, you know, preteens, teenagers could kind of watch this and have a little spooky time with it, which is kind of fun. But yeah, I I think this is absolutely a cult classic movie. Um, And of course, you know, you have the licensing and the merchandising of it all and own plenty of merchandise that has to do with The Nightmare Before Christmas. But I definitely think that, you know, this is a movie movie that is really nice because it's a simple story at its on its surface. I've always likened it to something like The Grinch, you know. I I enjoy The Grinch and I like the little story that it has and I always liken it to something like that because it is a nice simple story about somebody who's just trying to who who becomes infatuated with this new thing that they've discovered and they want to try and do it and you know, really go for it. But then they find that they're able to just, you know, they're good at doing what they're good at doing. And then they finally realize that maybe that's what they should stick with. But then they get to meld the both together. We'll learn all about that in the plot summary. But yeah, I know. I definitely think this movie is a cult classic. It's, and it's funny too, because then like it was released by Touchstone Pictures, which was more of the, the kind of adult fare that Disney was releasing at the time with like live action movies and things of that sort. But then it's funny that then it, you know, once it's actually done kind of well and it is now this sort of staple with kids during Halloween and Christmas and things like that, that then Walt, you know, the Walt Disney company then wants to be like, you know, oh yeah, well, you know, we, we made that, we helped make that. Like, you know, even though I think for some years, like, you know, I don't know how much involvement Disney wanted to have with the movie. That's neither here nor there. But I just think it's kind of interesting that that's, that's part of that. But now that we've kind of gone over some production history, we've gone over why this movie is an absolute cult classic. Now we're going to move into our plot summary. 
So we open our film on Twas a Long Time Ago, and we get introduced to the different holiday doors that are all just transfixed onto these trees in a forest. So you have, like, the Christmas door, the Thanksgiving door, the Easter door, and then we also have the Halloween door, and that's the door that we enter. And we get introduced to This is Halloween, one of the songs of the film. This song is our main intro to Halloween Town, and everyone is just introducing themselves, so we have... I am the clown with the tearaway face. And then they have the thing hiding under your stairs. Fingers like snakes and spiders in my hair. And we then are introduced to Jack Skellington, voiced by Chris Sarandon, and singing voiced by Danny Elfman. Everyone is praising Jack at how scary he is. He, I guess, is a pumpkin king dude. And then he gets, uh, he jumps into this fountain in the middle of town square. And he then comes up as a skeleton. And now he's like a skeleton. So everyone's praising Jack for how scary he is. And the This Is Halloween episode, uh, the This Is Halloween song that ends. Everyone's just praising Jack about how scary he is. And then we get introduced to Sally, voiced by Catherine O'Hara, who is an absolute icon. She also does the singing voice for her as well. I'm a huge Shit's Creek fan, and I wish that, you know, during the course of that show, she dressed up as Sally, but she didn't. It's fine. But anyway, so we have our intro to Sally and Dr. Finkelstein, who we don't know his name until later in the movie, but it's Dr. Finkelstein. He actually made her uh, as, like, his, like, little pet thing, I guess. So Sally runs away from Dr. Finkelstein, uh, losing her arm in the process because she is a rag doll and she could just lose her limbs, I guess. And then we see Jack walking away from the procession. He gives money to a busking band and they say nice work bone daddy and he's just walking away he seems a little depressed we also get a view of sally sitting in the graveyard and she watches jack walk by her and then we also get introduced to zero who is jack's ghost dog so i guess he just stays in the graveyard and then whenever jack wants him to come out he comes out of the grave because he's a ghost and then we get an introduction to the song jack's lament and this is pretty much a song where jack is talking about how he's just growing bored of doing the same thing year over year um i guess he's really good at being scary but he doesn't want to keep being scary he's kind of getting bored of all that so sally follows jack and is watching this whole song unfold and she feels for him because she even says like oh jack i know how you feel and so then um sally then grabs some deadly nightshade and she takes it back home to dr finkelstein and then sally has to come back home because she has to get her arm reattached because she's just been running around with no arm so then jack is walking through the woods so again he was depressed while he was singing and he just like went on a walk to go and clear his thoughts and Zero seems to want to play fetch, so he takes, like, a bone and, like, throws it to him and then, you know, brings it back. And then the mayor, voiced by Glenn Shattuck, rest in peace, he was on in Heathers and he was also in Beetlejuice as well. He is going to Jack's house and he's looking for Jack, but Jack is nowhere to be found. Um, he has two sides of his face. He has, like, a happy side and kind of, like, a serious side, apparently. And then he actually falls down the stairs and the band tells the mayor that Jack hasn't been home at all all night because Jack just lives in this like random ass castle uh, that's like the highest point in Halloween Town I guess. And then Jack comes across a new part of the woods that he was walking in and this is the part of the forest that we saw earlier in the movie. He finds the trees from the beginning with all of the different holiday doors on it and he seems intrigued by the Christmas tree door which is just a Christmas tree and he then opens it and then is 
put into and falls into Christmas Town. We then have our introduction to What's This, the song What's This, and this song is about Jack discovering Christmas and loving the idea of Christmas and the Christmas Town. Um, so this is very much like a Dr. Seuss-looking, kind of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer-looking thing. Everyone's just, it's all snowy, everyone's just like all cheery and happy. It's just a beautiful, wonderful song, of course. Uh, the other Halloween Town residents seem to be concerned that Jack is missing because he is like their leader pretty much and so they seem really concerned that he's not around. All of the different residents have looked in different places for Jack but nobody has found him because he's obviously in the Christmas town right now so he's just kind of living his best little Christmas life. Um, Sally then takes the deadly nightshade that she got from the graveyard and mixes it in with Dr. Finkelstein's soup that she's making him because she's like his slave pretty much and like literally doing everything for him. But then uh, Sally brings Dr. Finkelstein his soup she made for him but he seems kind of suspect about this soup he doesn't really want to eat it you know because he i think he smells something in it that would cover odor i guess i don't remember what it is oh wormswood or something like that he wants her to taste it first though but sally's like oh yeah i'll taste it for you and she actually has like a little slotted spoon where she pretends to eat the food pretty much um but she obviously has like poisoned it or put something in there to like make him sleep and then dr finkelstein eats his food and then he falls into this deep sleep just like how sally wanted it we then um see a town meeting song because jack has finally come back from christmas town he is like all into the idea of christmas he's like oh yeah we're gonna be doing this shit this is gonna be great so the mayor then gets in his car he's announcing that there's a town meeting going on and all of the residents are at the town meeting so they're all coming there you got you know the witches and the werewolf you got the guy with the axe in his head all that good stuff and all the residents are at the town meeting and jack wants to tell them about christmas town like what he found out and all like, oh, this is great. So then he sings a little song about Christmas Town, about what's going on with this and what's it all about. He then shows the residents of Halloween Town like presents, and they're like, well, what's in those? Like, is it something scary? And he's like, no, it's not scary. Oh, a Christmas stocking. Oh, is there a foot in it? Like, no, there's not. Um, and they show a Christmas, he shows them a Christmas tree. Um, but everyone in the town, like I said, was just trying to make it seem like it might be scary. Uh, when Jack's just like, no, that's not the point of this. Like, what are you talking about? And then he also gets the, uh, to introduce the idea of Sandy Claus, not Santa Claus, Sandy Claus, which is what he will be referred to. And that, you know, he is like the ruler of Christmas and Christmas town. Um, and he's this like portly fellow. Even Jack, I think, mentions that the town doesn't seem to understand what his idea is um they don't seem to get it that everybody just wants things to be scary which makes sense it's halloween town but then you see jack in his bed with his cute little pjs on and he's like reading all about the si um he's all reading about the christmas books he's reading like rudolph the red-nosed reindeer i think um and he also then reads the scientific method because you know i don't know what his exact job is but he's gonna turn himself to a scientist okay and he's going to try to figure out what he can do to like understand how to make you know, Christmas a thing, I guess. And Dr. Finkelstein then locks Sally away because she poisoned him and apparently had done this before uh, with good reason because she's trying to escape her life. Jack then comes to the lab of Dr. Finkelstein to, uh, like, borrow some equipment to perform some experiments. And as you already can see, 
uh, by this point in the movie, you see that Sally has some interest in Jack, um, but it's almost like he doesn't even quite know that she exists. But again, it's one of those things where, you know, she wants to get into a deeper relationship with him, but he only knows her so much. So then we move into our experiments part of the movie. So then you have Jack looking at a piece of mistletoe berry under a microscope that he accidentally squishes. Uh, he then puts a candy cane into a liquid that then like melts it. Um, he tries to make a, p- a snowflake out of paper, but it then turns into a spider instead. He then also performs surgery and cuts open a teddy bear and examines the stuffing inside of it. He then takes a Christmas ornament and then crushes it into a liquid that makes the solution glow. So he puts it in there, it just like glows for some reason. And then Sally, while this is happening, is mixing up a bottle of drink to take on a picnic with her. She has her little picnic basket and, you know, she wants to be all cute for her, her, you know, her man, Jack, that she wants to get with. So she takes her picnic basket, she lowers it down with a pulley system out of the window And then she jumps out of the window and just sews herself back together because, you know, she's a rag doll. She can do that. And Dr. Finkelstein tries to let Sally out, but she has um, escaped. So he sees that she's escaped. And so now she has to like deal with that and everything. Sally then comes to Jack's window and gives him the picnic basket to kind of show that like she's interested. And then Sally just disappears from that. And you can already tell that she's in love with Jack and that, you know, she wants to get with him. Uh, Sally then picks a flower and she starts to pick the petals off of it. But then the flower turns into a Christmas tree after she's touched it and then it burns up. And this is like her horrible vision that she has that she'll then refer to later. It's just like, you know, she just feels like there's something going on or something a little off about this whole thing. And then you have uh, the Jack's Obsession type of song. So they have the Something's Up with Jack song, which I think is really cute. But then there's just a whole song about like Jack is trying to figure out what the meaning of Christmas actually is, but he's just not quite getting it. Um, But then he declares that this year Christmas will be ours. So it's like he wants to be able to to kind of take over Christmas because he really likes it. He thinks it's really cool and he wants to really be able to do it. And so then he makes sure that Halloween Town residents all get their little job assignments for Christmas of like what they got to do. So like the band has to learn like little Christmas carols that they can play. Uh, Sally is tasked with making the Santa Claus outfit for Jack. Um, and then this is also where we get the intro to Lock, Shock, and Barrel, uh, who are voiced by Paul Rubens, Catherine O'Hara, and Danny Elfman. Uh, they're the minions of Oogie Boogie, so they work for him. Oogie Boogie, we'll get to in just a little bit. But then uh, they have a Jack has a top secret job for them, um, and, but asks that Oogie Boogie stays out of this because he's not giving him a job or anything. Uh, they already kind of have a relationship that's not great, I guess. But then you have the scheming song, which I believe is then also the kidnap Santa Claus song. Uh, so this is talking about how they're going to kidnap Santa Claus and torture him a bit, which you then find out that that's kind of what the the job was pretty much that was they were given was to go and find him uh, and to bring him back to Halloween Town so that Jack can take over um, doing Christmas. In the meantime, they feed a bug to Oogie Boogie, and you find out that Oogie Boogie is, like, this monster dude. 
And then the trick-or-treaters leave the town in a walking bathtub that they have. And Jack tries teaching the band that they have, like the busking band, uh, how to play Jingle Bells. But they're not really doing very well because they just turn it into a dirge as opposed to like a kind of upbeat song. And then from there, you have Sally is trying to tell Jack about the vision that she has had. And she tries to warn him about Christmas, about how it might just not be a good idea to kind of get yourself into all of this because I saw this horrible vision and I just don't think it's right. Um, and Jack wants Sally to make his outfit for him because she's, you know, a seamstress. Uh, the trick-or-treaters then come back with somebody in a bag, but it turns out that they brought back the Easter Bunny, so they went to the wrong town and stole the wrong person, or animal, I guess. And so then Dr. Finkelstein is now making a new Sally, uh, and we meet his assistant, Igor, so he's, like, trying to make a new uh, servant, slave, whatever the hell, um, person, I guess whatever Sally is supposed to be, which they'll come up later. But anyway, we then see that part. And then we see the making Christmas song. Uh, This song is the town singing about how they're making Christmas in their town and how they're all doing that. So they're just getting into the spirit of it all. We then also cut over to Christmas town, the actual Christmas town to see what the town is doing to prepare for that actual Christmas. So we kind of see these two comparisons of the towns of what are the people in Halloween town doing? And then what is the actual Christmas town doing? We then see that it's 11 days until Christmas in the timeline, because we do get that as part of the song. And then we also see that Dr. Finkelstein makes reindeer out of skeletons because I guess they need to have that uh, in order to be able to do Christmas. So then we see Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus are at home over in Christmas Town while Santa is chalk hacking his naughty and nice list to see like who's been naughty and who's been nice. And then at this point, we see the trick or treaters then kidnapping Santa Claus. And then Jack is trying to, he's trying on his Santa Claus outfit. And Sally's telling him that he looks nothing like himself and that, you know, Again, she's just having this not great feeling. And the trick-or-treaters then bring Santa Claus back to Halloween Town. And he meets the residents of Halloween Town. And he's just kind of in a daze because they, you know, kidnapped him. And Jack is talking to Santa about how he's taking over Christmas for the year. He then takes Santa's hat. And the trick-or-treaters then uh, take Santa away. And they give him over to Oogie Boogie pretty much. So then we see that Sally, uh, in an attempt to try to stop this whole thing with Christmas she gets out her fog juice and is trying to stop Jack so we see that Sally sees Dr. Finkelstein making a copy of himself and that he puts half of his brain into the copy so we also see that part as well that he's making a copy of himself and so then we see the trick-or-treaters stuff Santa down a chute uh, even though he's a large man and it's like a narrow chute but they put him down there and then he is then led into the lair of Oogie Boogie which is then we have the Oogie Boogie song this is our intro main intro to Oogie Boogie that he's this gambling man um, and this is a really good song it's a very really pretty like setting too uh this is a beautiful looking song there's glow paint all over the place it's neon as fuck it there's just it's so cool like i just really love the look of this whole song um it's really uh trippy in a way i think which is really cool and so pretty much like oogie boogie is keeping santa captive this whole time uh, and then the town band is starting to play Santa Claus is Coming to Town because they're getting into the spirit of it all. 
and everyone in Halloween Town is dressed up in uh, their Christmas garb as best they can do it, uh, being spooky and everything. And Sally takes her fog juice and she dumps it into the town fountain, the same one that Jack came out in the beginning of, um, to create fog and try to disrupt Jack from leaving uh, for Christmas. Because, again, she just feels like there's going to be something horrible happening. But then Jack realizes, like, oh, no, like, I can't fly out. Like, this is horrible. Like, there's all this fog. Oh, no, this is this is horrible. And then Jack realizes that Zero has a glowing nose, just like Rudolph, and that that'll help light the way to give the presents to Christmas, you know, for Christmas. And so then he gets on his way uh, in his skeleton reindeer sleigh, I guess. And he then flies away and is going to be doing the bulk of the Christmas deliveries. Then we get introduced to Sally's song. So Sally is pretty much singing, and I believe there's actually a cover of this that Fiona Apple did, apparently. But Sally is singing about how she just hopes that she's wrong about her premonition. She also is singing about whether Jack notices her and how much she mean he means to her, um, and that she doubts that they'll ever end up together. She, at this point, is just so in love with him and is so into him, but she doesn't know if he's into her you know and and she cares about him so much but like then at the same time it's like oh i just don't know why he just wants to do this it's not anything like him so you know she has that kind of push and pull we then get our christmas eve montage so we see jack is flying through the sky he's prepping to give presents to the kids on christmas um so he's flying through the air he's then going over to the real world because the setting we have is that we have these different holiday towns and then i guess we have the real world that they go to um, so, for example, a kid wakes up after hearing clattering on the roof, and he sees Jack giving presents, so he thinks, oh, this must be Santa Claus. And then um, Jack actually, you know, confronts the child that, you know, sees him, uh, gives him a present, and then it ends up that he has given him a shrunken head. Uh, which I guess I wouldn't mind if I got that, but you know, normally you wouldn't get that from Christmas, I guess. So then after that, you are seeing that calls are being placed into the police about toys that are attacking kids. Um, and then you see that the residents of Halloween Town are actually watching this journey that Jack is taking, kind of Wizard of Oz with the witch style, um, where they just see it in the fountain and they're seeing him just like flying around. But then you see other kids are opening their presents, but the presents are actually terrifying and scary um, to those who are getting them. So you see things like a snake is eating the Christmas tree, you see a pumpkin jack in the box that chases a kid around and a couple of other things like that. I always love the snake eating the Christmas tree. I always think that's funny. And police are just getting more calls. There's a TV report on the news regarding this as well. And military forces have been drawn up to try to like stop Jack from ruining Christmas pretty much. Um, so then you see all this happening and Jack thinks that like the military is actually celebrating him because he sees like these things that can be construed as fireworks when really they're shooting at him and they, okay, well, we'll just go higher. So he goes a little higher, but then he realizes that they're actually shooting at him to get him out of the sky. 
We then come back to Santa Claus with Oogie Boogie because now Sally wants to go and like try to save this whole situation. So we see that Sally has her leg distracting Oogie Boogie because again, she could take herself apart. So while her hands are actually helping to untie Santa Claus and have him escape from this whole situation. So Sally's really trying to be that girl and trying to help her, her friend out. But then Oogie Boogie finds them. He then sucks them back into the lair before they can actually escape. And so Jack is still flying through the sky, and then he's finally made aware that he's actually being shot at out of the sky, and the residents of Halloween Town are still kind of looking at him with this journey, and they see him get shot out of the sky and are ready to mourn him. So then you see the mayor gets in his car, and he's announcing the tragedy of, like, you know... Jack has been shot out of the sky. He's now dead, pretty much, even though I guess he was already dead to begin with. But, you know, um, this is a terrible tragedy. And so then in the real world, uh, a similar scene is also happening where, like, a police officer is announcing what is being seen and that Santa Claus will has still not been found and it's likely that Christmas will be canceled this year. So when I watched this for the second time or however long I've watched it, I noticed that these are these two scenes. Like you have uh, the Halloween Town mayor driving and he's announcing this tragedy for Jack and then you see the police in the real world announcing this tragedy with Santa Claus and I just thought that was kind of an interesting um, comparison. We then see the wreckage of Jack's flight in a graveyard. So he has landed in a graveyard. He's landed on the arms of an angel. Insert Sarah McLaughlin song here, I guess. But um, but he is singing the song called Poor Jack, where he then realizes the error of his ways. He like almost wants to just hide away from his mistake. He just wants to crawl into a hole and just like hide because he's made this horrible mistake. He also then says that he didn't mean any harm by this. But then he realizes that he just should have stuck to Halloween and that he does want to try and set things right with Christmas. So it is good that by this point you are getting this kind of redemption for Jack in a way just because like he is finally seeing the error of his ways and that really you know he also is singing about like how you know he's finally felt like something was different because you know Jack's lament is talking about how he's just been bored doing the same thing year over year and that now he wants to be able to he's been able to do something different which is great so I thought that was really interesting as well so then we see Oogie Boogie is preparing to burn up Sally and Santa Claus so they have them on like this table that he's just like kind of cranking so that they just fall into this burning stuff and so Jack then comes back to Halloween Town he uses like the graveyard that he was in to then travel back to like near his graveyard that he was at earlier and then be able to get to Halloween Town and so then yeah so then he's running back to Halloween Town to try and get Santa Claus back to try to make everything better So Jack then hears the yells of Santa and Sally, and he decides that he's going to go and save them. So then um, we are back in Oogie Boogie's lair, and, you know, Sally and Santa look like they're fucked. And then Jack actually confronts Oogie Boogie about his attempt at murder and is tasked with fighting Oogie Boogie on his own turf. So, you know, he's pretty much distracting him from killing, you know, Sally and Santa. So Oogie Boogie uh, is fighting with Jack and it's like this whole little like, it's not a merry-go-round, but it's just like these different traps that he has set. And, you know, he's having to you know deal with those on Oogie Boogie's turf and he's trying to fight him. And we then 
uh, Oogie Boogie is about to like finish the deed and he's about to like kill these two. And then he accidentally releases a thread of his own because he's made out of like a burlap sack pretty much. And Jack pulls on it. And we then see that Oogie Boogie is actually just made up of a bunch of bugs. And the bugs all are then like falling out. Yeah, they're all falling into like the lava or whatever the hell it is. Then we see that Santa Claus just steps on the remaining bug. He's just like, yeah, fuck you too. So then um, Santa is rightfully kind of pissed at Jack. He tells him to stick to his own holiday. He then tells him to listen to Sally because she's like the only person who makes any sense about anything. So then Santa is back to his you know his christmas town and sally and jack have a little bit of a moment because this is where you know jack finally realizes who sally is and like that she has been there for him this whole time but then they are found by the mayor and the trick-or-treaters and are then brought back into halloween town proper so now we have the finale of this movie uh we see that santa is setting things right because he even said like you know to jack when Jack asks, like, you know, do you think you can do everything, you know, you need to do? And they go, of course, I'm Santa. I'll, I'll find a way. Uh, but then Santa is setting things right back in the real world. He's giving the presents as he normally would. And, he, uh, you know, you see the news report all happy and everyone's happy in the real world getting their Christmas. And Jack then comes back to Halloween Town. The residents of Halloween Town are now happy to see him because um, they're happy to see that he's not like legit dead. Again, he's already dead though, but they're happy to see that he's not completely destroyed, I guess. And then uh, a nice little ending of having Santa fly over Halloween Town and making it snow there. So Santa says, Happy Halloween. And then Jack says, Merry Christmas to Santa as he's flying away. And so you see all of this snow falling. And you then see that the residents of Halloween Town are now playing in the snow. Uh, we then see Dr. Finkelstein's new partner that he made, who honestly is like kind of goals and snatched a little bit. She's just like a female version of him pretty much, but she looks, she's everything. She's not as bad of a bitch as Sally is, honestly, but I mean, she's almost there kind of, uh, that would be me, honestly. Anyway, Sally then walks out of Halloween Town and goes up to the top of the Crescent Mountain, I guess I'm going to call it. This is the same mountain that uh, Jack was walking down, and it's pretty much that iconic mountain that is associated with the Nightmare Before Christmas. And she goes to the top of that, and this is where they have their little ending song where Jack and Sally sing to one another, and they're professing their love to each other, and how they have always are meant to be, and that they have to have this nice little ending. And then, yeah, that's the end of the movie. And that's the end of Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. So in closing, what about The Nightmare Before Christmas? I personally think this is such a great little movie. Um, it's a nice, fun, little, simple story. I think you could definitely show kids of a certain age this. And I think parents can kind of enjoy it, too, a little bit if they're into kind of that spooky stuff. Uh, I think this is both a Christmas and a Halloween movie that you can show. And I always have just enjoyed it. And uh, I will still continue to enjoy it. So you can stream this on Disney Plus if you have a subscription for that. Uh, you can also, if need be, rent or buy it from, like, Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, places like that. Uh, but I would definitely recommend going and watching it. If you want to get the Blu-ray of it, I got mine a couple years ago on Christmas. But, yeah, you can definitely watch that, too. It'll probably have some fun special features on it. I know mine had, like, a making of little documentary. It had Vincent, which is the little short film that I think Tim Burton did that had Vincent Price 
who was voiceovering it. And yeah, I just, I enjoy this movie so much. I think you will too, if you haven't already seen it. And I would definitely recommend uh, giving it a watch. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. In case you want to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you just want to say, hey girl, hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow Cult Cinema Circle on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram handle is Cult Cinema Circle, and Twitter handle is Cult Cinecircle. On those platforms, I tend to post when new episodes are coming out. I make little Instagram stories, all that kind of fun stuff over there. You can also follow me on Letterboxd at Jesse. J-E-S-S-E, Kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On there, I post the movies that I watch, I write reviews on them, and just general foolishness over there. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts at. I make it pretty easy to have the show be found. Be sure to leave a five stars and a one to two sentence review so that more people are able to find the show, and then the audience can just grow that much more. As always, Always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember, I am the shadow on the moon at night, filling your dreams to the brim with fright. Take care. Bye.